All right. Well, we're going to start out this morning with a story about a man. For now, I'm going to call him Q. Uh, Q grew up wealthy. His, his dad was rich, successful, very influential in the community, respected by almost everyone, and envied by all. Growing up, Q had just these very high expectations for, uh, that were placed on him by his dad. Uh, he was groomed and, and vetted to succeed his dad and, and run the family business. And so even though Q had like several older brothers, half-brothers, uh, who wanted to follow in their father's footsteps, Q was the only one his dad trusted. Uh, that's a high expectation for any young kid. And so, you know, when his dad died, Q was forced to step in early and, and take over the reins. Now, now, thankfully, uh, his dad had done such a good job uh, consolidating the business that there wasn't much to do but keep clients pleased and, and maintain quality assurance and customer support. And, and that was actually really easy for Q. Like, he was, he was young, smart, funny, and capable, and charitable, and well-liked, and, and very much like his dad in that way. Now, sure, like he didn't, maybe he didn't have the same killer instinct like his dad or, or his brothers, but you know, that's not, at that point, it wasn't as important anymore. Things just weren't as cutthroat as they used to be. Now, over the years, Q invested wisely and, and got richer, like, like not just richer, but way richer than his dad ever was. Uh, his family was religious, and so Q went to church regularly and, and supported all the, the, the church building projects. And, and most of his wealth, though, was devoted to other things. Like, uh, to say that Q lived large would be an understatement. His success provided him with many friends and, and all kinds of opportunities to just, just indulge in utter affluence. He frequented expensive restaurants and he drank the finest wines and he purchased several fancy cars and filled them with attractive women. And in fact, Q's cavorting and, and, and lascivious lifestyle were, were well known and, and, and documented as the company would gain international notoriety and fame. His exploits put him at tension with the local church community, of course. But since the budget was flourishing from all of his contributions, they didn't really say much in response to it. Now, as he gets older, Q turns his attention uh, away from all the one-night stands and the uh, just obscene personal expenditures to, to more of the significant matters that were facing his community. He fought against the injustices of social trafficking and fatherlessness, against systemic poverty, uh, Q became this sought-after voice and, and an important political and social influence for many. Uh, and he wrote best-selling books, and he even dabbled in poetry for a while with, with really great success. Now, finally, at the end of his life, Q was, was interviewed, and, and he was asked about the significant contributions that he had made, uh, about his relationships, about his experiences and his charity, 
And so he was asked, which of those things defined him? Like, which of those things did he find the most meaningful? And so, upon reflection, his answer was somewhat shocking. Q replied, No, my my experiences, they did not define me. In fact, I feel kind of like my life was a waste. With all of this incredible wealth that this man had accumulated, he could think of nothing worthwhile to buy. And despite all of these sexual exploits, he had no one to share the remaining moments of his life. And despite the great strides that he had made in combating poverty and and human trafficking, people were still poor and women were still abused. People were reading his books until the next best-selling book came along and then they weren't. After all that Q had accomplished and seen and experienced, All that he could say when looking back was, I don't know. I I just don't know. Now, the story of Q is not what most think when they think about Bible stories. Often the mind goes to things like Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark and Moses and the burning bush or the the Red Sea and and Ruth and Boaz, David and Goliath and Esther and Elijah. And there's no shortage of these epic biblical stories that detail the the faithfulness and, and power of God in the midst of human history. And yet, this story of Q should be included among them in our consideration. Q's full name is Kohelet. Kohelet. And that's a Hebrew word meaning one who collects, one who assembles together. But in most of our English translations, he was known as the teacher or the, the preacher. Now, Q's story is an autobiographical narrative, and it's found in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And that is where we find ourselves today. We are diving into a five-part series this morning called Living by Dying. And I'm going to go ahead and, and give you the main idea for this whole series right now. And that is this, the only way you will ever uncover meaning for your life, the only way you will discover what it means to have life and have it abundantly is by encountering the death of every avenue, every pursuit, but one. The main truth behind the book of Ecclesiastes is that there is nothing Not one thing that you can find on this earth that will bring you true, eternal glory. And yet, there are often so many ideas and experiences and beliefs and objects that vie for your attention every single day. We can be easily and hopelessly distracted from the singular hope that Christianity offers. 
The reality is that all of humanity is searching for meaning. The search for meaning is the single most important pursuit of all mankind. There is, that is not, I'm not just, like, that's not conjecture. Like, psychologists and sociologists have long known that meaning, in other words, is this promise of future hope, is the driving force of life. So we're about to embark on this five-week journey through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So go home this week and, and read through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. It's not a long book. And in fact, I would encourage you to read it once a week for the next five weeks. And and I'm not going to lie to you. It's super depressing. Like, it's a major downer of a book. Uh, The main character, Q, or the, the teacher, Kohelet, he's this, like, playboy king philanthropist guru. So, like, think of... Think of, uh, like, scholars in the past have equated him with Solomon. And and at the very least, you can think of King Solomon and and his story in 2 Samuel when you think of Q at 1 Kings and 2 Samuel. And and when we read his musings here, in in the the bite-sized little chunks that we have always been taught to do, we're never quite sure what to do with this story. Um, Ecclesiastes is quoted all the time. The birds even wrote a famous song based on it, right? To everything, turn, 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 right? 1962, the birds. And, and, and yet, because of like how the text sometimes is always ranting and rambling through the, these questions and concerns, the quotes are almost always out of context. Like, they're always happy songs and, and happy quotes, and yet the book itself is weird and strange and, and dismal. But, but as I have read and, and studied and prepared for this series, I have come to this profound realization. Mankind needs this story desperately. Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom genre in the Bible. And and wisdom literature serves a very different purpose than other types of biblical literature. And so we need to read it differently from a different perspective and with different rules. Okay? It's like we're playing a different game. All right? So if you if you are if you're a soccer player and then you get into a, a basketball court, you can't use the rules of soccer to play basketball, right? It doesn't work. Okay, we need to read wisdom literature with different rules than we would read poetry or history or or the gospels. Okay. Um, the biggest misconception about wisdom books in the Bible is that it is a fortune cookie theology where it's all these quick snippets of rules that are given for living a better life. But the wisdom books, and that includes Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, they're doing two things. Uh, First, we're trying to understand God's design for the created world. 
And two, we are trying to understand how we humans were meant to participate in that world. In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of man? And how, in light of that purpose, are we supposed to interact with the world? And so the reason why Ecclesiastes is so important is is that the way in which Kohelet goes about discovering this is often the same way that we would go about discovering that same thing. Q is like this tour guide. He's taking us, uh, the readers, on this journey throughout the material world and and hoping to find something eternal, something truly and, and authentically tangible to hold on to, something that will make us matter in some way to someone, something that will give our lives meaning. And what is unique to uh, Ecclesiastes compared to like every other book in the Bible is, is that Q does not start by assuming or affirming these absolute truths about God as the pedestal from which all other thoughts about the world are supported. Most of the time when we read scripture, we say, here's our understanding. God is the base, and from there we spring off everything else. God is the foundation, and from there we understand all other aspects of life. Q decides to do something different. He says, let's just for a moment take God out of the equation. What if he wasn't there? Where's my foundation? How would I lay this down? How would I I set this down, try to find something solid to hold on to, something to search for, something to grab onto, something solid on which to stand? But let's for a moment take God out of the equation. So what Q starts with is his understanding, his worldview, his reason and observation and his experience. And the beauty of this is that for him, his worldview as he is developing this is our worldview. Without the scriptures, we, ought, we start in the same place. We start with reason, observation, and experience in the same way. And so, so his worldview is our worldview. His perception is, is the human perception. There is nothing extraordinarily divine in his understanding. And so what the book of Ecclesiastes does, does is it, it forces us to take Q's understanding at face value, to experience the world ourselves, and to join him in this all-out search for a meaningful experience, existence, and to necessarily accept his conclusion of all of that as our own. So here's what we're going to do. For the next Four weeks, four and a half weeks, my job is to just completely depress you, just to totally bum you out. But hang with me, all right? Because the last week is going to be really, really, really great, okay? The last half of the last week is going to be really, really, really great. But for four and a half weeks, we're all going to bum out together, okay? So don't leave, all right? If you miss the last week, it's all just going to be bummer. So you have to come week five, okay? 
This is my, my challenge to you. We're going to use the book of Ecclesiastes as this roadmap and a legend. To, and we, we just need to be honest with ourselves and with our community as we go through. Because prayerfully, we will come to the same conclusion about what everything, all of life, is all about. So, it's going to be all uphill that last little bit. But we're just going to kind of careen downhill towards the end, all right? Towards the bottom, all right? Living by dying, that's the whole idea, right? We're going to find life by dying everywhere else, okay? And at the end, we'll find life. All right. So if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Here we go. Verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Now, I don't know if you, you gathered just from that first verse. There's a word in there that, that the author of Ecclesiastes really wants us to understand. He repeats it five times in a row, just in the first one. In fact, the, um, the, the CSB version of this is not as good. It should actually say, futility of, fu futility of futilities, says the teacher. Futility of futilities. All things are futile things, okay? Futile, 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 futile. Now, the word in Hebrew here is hevel. Everybody say hevel. Hevel, okay? Um, hevel literally means a vapor. Uh, I searched all around Anderson and Cottonwood to try and find dry ice this morning, and nobody had it. So my, my amazing illustration is not going to hit. I have a different one, so we'll look at that in a second. But, but it's this idea of like this wispy smoke that's gathering and, and billowing out. And it's attracting us with, with its swirling and, 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 and climbing out. And, and we want to just take hold of it. But you can't, right? Have you ever tried to grab smoke or a vapor? What happens? It just, it just moves and escapes right out from your hands. You can never, like, if I were to issue a challenge, like, here's some vapor, take as much of it and put it in this can as possible. We'll save it for later. You have to grab it and put it in. Like, could anybody ever do that? It's an impossible challenge, right? You can't, you can't grab vapor and then put it into a can. Like, that doesn't, it's, it's an impossible task, right? And you can, you can see it. You can, you can touch it. But you can't hold it. Now, our English versions of the Bible have Hevel translated as futile or vanity or meaningless or even an enigma. But, but ultimately, it's this idea of frustration. Because as hard as you try to contain it, it slips through your fingers. It disappears. It changes form. It's a paradox. It's a paradox. I found this picture of a paradox this week uh, made of Legos. And my wife swears that it's Photoshopped, but I totally disagreed. And I spent hours looking at this thing, 
trying to figure out how to build it. And I have no idea. I love Legos. I cannot figure out how to build this shape. It drives me nuts. And she's like, stop looking at it. You can't build this. They, it's made up. And I'm like, no, if, they, if it's showing up on the screen, I should be able to make this. And I'm just looking at it forever. And I still don't know how to make a shape like this. How do you build it? It comes back down. I don't get it, right? It's a paradox. It's frustrating. The frustration is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all of these paths that look like they're going somewhere, but they lead to nowhere. So whenever you encounter this word, hevel, I want you to think of the word vapor. Now, I know your, vo- your, your, your Bibles are going to have words like vanity or, or enigma or futility, but vapor, that's the idea that, that, that we are, are encouraged to see when we hear that word. When we travel down the road that Q is walking, I want you to equate in your mind whatever Q encounters or experiences with this image of a vapor that's trailing upward. It's enticing you to take it, but it vanishes as soon as you reach for it. Now, what is... What does the author mean when he says that everything is a vapor? Everything, really? Now, now, it's easy when, when you hear from right from the beginning, the author saying everything, all things are, are, are meaningless, futile, frustrating, enigmas, vapors, everything. It might be easy for us to dismiss the teacher as, as one of four things. Like maybe, maybe Q is a nihilist, right? Nothing matters, morality is made up, there's no future, so cry and weep and wail until you die. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that the attitude that we're reflecting on? Now maybe he's just a cynic. Nothing matters, there's nothing worthwhile to live for, so don't worry about it. Or, or pretend everything is better, but, but don't waste your time complaining about it. It is what it is. Are we supposed to be cynics? Maybe Q is a hedonist. Nothing matters. So for now, just live your life to the fullest and, and don't worry about tomorrow. Just enjoy every moment as if it's your last. We like that one. Are we supposed to be hedonists? Or... Is he an escapist? Now, Christians, we really like this one. We really like this one. Nothing matters. Nothing on this earth matters. So abandon it completely. Run to the closet and pray. Don't pay attention to your body or the physical world because because that's all evil and bad, but the spirit is all that matters. So escape. Run. Are we called to be escapists? reality is that each one of these perspectives is not that far fetched because each one of us experiences thoughts and ideas of nihilism, cynicism, hedonism, and escapism. 
We all have this, this tendency because these are all defense mechanisms that we humans experience on a regular basis. When we encounter the frustrations of life, the paradoxes that say this should have worked and yet here I am turning on the same road I've always been on. How do I get out of this cycle? Our temptation is these things. It's natural. Now, is that Q's perspective? What do we do? Before we make a judgment on his life, let's, let's keep reading and, and see if, the, if he can explain it a little bit more for us. Verse 3. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind. And the wind returns to its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams go, there they flow again. All things are wearisome more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Q gives us this poem here that affirms what we all know as a starting point for all of humanity. Like this is, from at least from his perspective, the foundation of what I know about mankind. None of us can argue about these things, at least from our earthly perspective. Now as a Christian, as a believer in an all-powerful creator... I know that these same rules don't apply to God because he makes the rules and, and he is not bound by them. But I'm, I'm going to commit the cardinal sin of preachers today and I'm going to take God out of the equation. And I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm breaking that rule today because that's what Q is doing here. The temptation is to take the easy way out so to speak, to, to insert God quickly and painlessly into the problems that we experience in the world and to explain away the difficulties without stepping into the mess and encountering reality as it presents itself to us. So it's important that we resist the urge this morning to, to play the God card, this quick get-out-of-jail-free card, and just for a moment, pay attention to these fears and concerns that normally and constantly occupy our thoughts. The teacher is going to make three points here. Number one, we are temporary creatures. And if, and if you're a Hebrew nerd, the poem is set up as a, as a chiasm. And, like, and so... And by that, I mean it starts on the outside and it works its way in 
dead center, and right in the middle is the point that the, the teacher is going to get at. And I'll explain what that is in just a moment. But he's going to start on the outsides, and he's going to work his way in, okay, like an X. So verses 3 and 4 and 11, right on the outsides. And he's explaining right there, we are temporary creatures. You and I exist for a particular amount of time in a particular place, and then we don't. Every person, we all, we all get 60, 70, 80 years, if we're lucky, and then death. Told you it's a downer book. So one, we are temporary creatures. Two, while we are temporary, time is forever. History and time are these eternal, cyclical things, and, and no long, matter how long a human and his influence may last, time always beats us in the end. Because when we die, history continues. It doesn't end where we do. And the third idea is that we can never be satisfied as much as you and I strive for perfection, whether it be the perfect job, the perfect relationship, the perfect self-identity, it always seems just out of reach because it is. No one experiences everything the world truly has to offer. And even if we could, it can't guarantee you real happiness. We are temporal creatures. Time is forever, and we can never be fully satisfied. And again, it's important for us to remember that the teacher is not making like theological suppositions. These are just human observations. He's like, this is the way I see it, y'all. You don't need a systematic theology textbook to tell you that you are not an infinite creature. But you are bound by the, the chains of time. And that you are limited in light of, of, of the seemingly infinite scope of human history. From the dawn of all things until the end of time. You know that you don't need like to read Q to understand this. You know it instinctively. We are, we are painfully aware of it. And yet you also painfully have no control or ability to change it. For me, this was, this was, this was painfully obvious the moment I turned mid-20s and my metabolism started to slow down and I started gaining weight and I couldn't just, like, go to sleep and then lose all of it the next day. And I'm like, what happened to me? Like I was fine. I was, I was in great shape. And now the next day I'm not in great shape. What happened? Your metabolism just said, I, I quit. I'm not going to work anymore. And then I had kids and, and they're, they're just like these, these pure balls of energy just sprinting around all over me and pulling and tugging on me to come play with them. And I don't want to because I'm tired. We would play games where I'm like, can we just play a game where I stand in the middle and you just run around me? And they, were, they loved that game, actually. 
They love the game where I just stand in the middle of the circle and they run constantly. And I'm like, can we please stop playing this game? I'm tired of standing. And the, the moment my knees started hurting all the time and the, the first time my back went out, I'm like, what happened to me? I was fine. And the next day, I'm, I'm miserable. Like, what, what happened? And, and there's nothing that I did. Time continued on and my body stopped. It was inert. Like, I, I, time kept going and I was the brick wall that, that it ran into. And I'm like, what is going on here? So, so I, I'm very aware of what, what Q is telling me. And so it's, it's no surprise that, that all of these ideas are centering around this one idea right in the middle, that everything is wearisome. It tires us out. Within our search for meaning, the great hope is that once you find that elusive vapor of vapors, once you finally catch whatever it is that will make your life worthwhile and, and all-fulfilling, well, then you can just rest and be at peace and just enjoy it because you've satisfied yourself. And the reason that we will find out is that this hope is real and good, is rooted in something. We just don't know what yet. We know that it's there. We know there is something tangible, something or someone that we can grab onto that is firm and steadfast. We haven't found it yet. I believe there is something out there that can fulfill us and satisfy us and bring us rest. And yet our search on our own often leads to objects, to created things, to things we can buy, to things we can earn. And those things can certainly please us or bring about good feelings, but only for a time. And then we must continue forward in search of the next fix. And it's easier in the time of youth to, to strive forward with some of these pursuits because we know we have the time and energy to perhaps accomplish something or experience something that might be that ultimate meaningful end. But in this case, I think it is wise for us to listen to the voice of Q who has experienced everything and yet is tired and weary and he is still unfulfilled. Now here's what he says next. He says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. I love, this. I love this sentence here. It's my favorite sentence in the whole book. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. Is that not true? That is 100% true. I have seen all things that are done 
under the sun and found everything to be hevel, the pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, See, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. At the end of this, this very dark and depressing introduction, we, we come to one of them, we are, are, are introduced to one of the most real, raw, and authentically honest confessions in the entire Bible. It's tempting to think that the Bible is often full of these like heroic, like quasi-humans. They're human, but not quite human, right? They're almost like better than human. Like these, these humans who, who hear God's voice better than we hear our own thoughts. And sometimes God does in fact choose to work in that way by, by breaking up the cycle of human history and showing his divine power in awesome and, and world-changing ways and through some pretty inspiring persons. But I think it's, it's important to remember that, that most of the people in, mentioned in the Bible, these are not superhumans. They're not, they're not more, they're not like better humans. Most of them are, are just like you and me. They're like normal, everyday people who are stuck in this real, tangible world, longing for love, looking for vindication, aiming and angling for something or someone who will validate their existence. And in this, this, this present day of our, our, all these distractions and experiences that, that we have, all these occupations of busyness that we, we pride ourselves in and commit ourselves to, we can easily get caught up in this exhaustive search for meaning. But I think when we all pause for a moment and we take stock of those experiences, those possessions, those earthly achievements that we have, that we will experience the same frustration, discontent. And if we're honest with ourselves, we may even develop a similar divine resentment because the inherent drive within us to find meaning must come from somewhere. Someone sent us on this journey. It's perplexing. This mystery that is the world that we live in. And so the question that is constantly on the tip of our tongues is, where do we find hope? 
Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. I told you there's no encouragement today. This is just a pressing day, okay? And then next week and the next week and the next week. And then, but then all of it will get really, really good at the end, okay? Okay, but my goal is to just, like you said, careen you down this path of despair until the end. And then it's going to be really great from there on. So I'm not going to tell you where this hope lies. Most of you are already going to figure this out. But for now, go on the journey with me. Take on, just take stock and say, what if we are at that stage? What if it were just us looking out and exploring this idea? There's going to be three stops along the journey. Um, three stops towards discovering ultimate meaning. And, and we need to explore each one of the stops in detail before we, we move on. Because each of those stops is an area of life for humans where, where we have for eternity sought to find our own individual validations. Now, like I said, most of the time, uh, like the rule of preaching is you got to end with Jesus. And and, and, and how you, you applicate, like, how, what's your application to this? What are your three steps to following Jesus better, to being a better Christian? I'm not going to give you those because that is not the type of book that Ecclesiastes is. So that's not the type of sermon this is. I'm breaking another rule. And I'm okay with that. Here's what I want you to do instead. I want you to pause and consider your life right now. Because one of the ways that God leads us to know him is by making us pay attention to ourselves. One of the ways that God reveals himself to us is by the slow recovering of our humanity. He shows us what we were made for. And then he asks us to look at what has become of us. This is what you were made for. Look at what you are right now. Because by knowing ourselves that we are, we might come to know God as he is. By knowing ourselves as we are, we might come to know God as he is. So, Begin to take time now to observe yourself. Without, take off the polish of spirituality. Take off the facade of pretense. Just, just raise that mask right up and say, this is unvarnished who I am. Just plainly and clearly as you are. And as you do, I believe that there will be a longing that will emerge for something greater than that, something better, something truer, something solid, okay? With that, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing together about Jesus, and then we're going to go home, okay? Father, I thank you for this weird book, this strange story that for the most part is all darkness and no light. 
But even as we explore that story, Father, we know there is a spark. There is a spark of light that pulls us toward you, that tells us to keep going. Jesus, we're, aiming, we're coming for you. We're aiming for you. Help us as we go. Father, I, I ask that you would encourage this body, this community, to lean on one another, to ask real questions, real searching questions that acknowledge the truth of where we are. Help us, Father, to search slowly, carefully. Weed out the voices and the temptations and the angles. As we look, Father, for the path that does not turn and turn and turn, but straightens out and moves forward towards the horizon. Just keep shining your light, Jesus. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I tried to find some worship songs that, that were based on Ecclesiastes. I couldn't. That's the only one there is, I think.